stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Canadians are hurting, Canada's hurting, the economy's hurting, and what they expect from us, what they expect from a nation is government at the highest level to be engaged with the people that have requests, uh, have uh, a set of demands that go back hundreds of years and haven't been followed, but on the right conditions and on conditions where we can move between peoples that are known for being peaceable, but that can't happen without the dialogue at the highest level. Okay, so that was Federal Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller speaking today about this whole situation, that we need to resolve this, that there need to be, uh, needs to be dialogue. But dialogue with whom? And resolving what exactly? Is this simply just a situation around one particular project, the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, part of the LNG Canada project? Is it just about whether or not this pipeline is going to go ahead? Or are we talking about a lot of bigger issues? in terms of unresolved land claims, in terms of indigenous title, indigenous consent, moving past the Indian Act, reconciliation. Right? What, what is this about? And I think Canadians are, are really trying to understand what the issues are here. I mean, you have other issues. There are a number of eco-activists, I think, that are trying to latch on to all of this and make this about emissions and climate policy and fossil fuels and all of these kinds of things. So I think that just further complicates the issue. You know, we mentioned that poll earlier today where Canadians are overwhelmingly opposed to these blockades, but still at the same time sympathetic uh, to the fact that there are some legitimate grievances uh, from First Nations when it comes to certain issues. So what is it we need to resolve? What is really going on here? Well, joining us uh, for some further thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here today, Ken Coates. He's a professor and Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson, uh, Johnson Shayama Graduate School of Public Policy, University of Saskatchewan, also Senior Policy Fellow in Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Professor Coates, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Oh, great to be with you. I mean, we had uh, a few years ago the Idle No More movement, which which seemed to be, you know, about uh, a lot of different issues, about uh, the state of the uh, relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians. Is is this comparable to that? Well, it's sort of part of the same heritage or part of the same lineage, I guess you might describe it. Obviously, Indigenous protests are and and and, and these kinds of gatherings are are important sort of uh, similarities, I guess. I see them quite a bit different, actually, in the sense that I don't know more if you remember it in detail. Um, these were, you know, hundreds of events across the country. They were incredibly peaceable events. They went out of their way not to cause inconvenience. Sometimes they blocked off a traffic traffic for, you know, an hour or two, sometimes only for half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did not go and try to slow down the Canadian economy or bring all sorts of great great uh, difficulties to lots of people. I also see, personally see the Idle No More movement as really an effort to sort of, it was Aboriginal people speaking to Aboriginal people. Uh, their main objective was to sort of say, we should stand up for ourselves. We should speak out. We should be doing it in a peaceable way, doing it in a constructive way, but we really have to defend our own interests. And, and I think Idle No More had a huge impact on Canada. It empowered Indigenous youth. Um, it was Indigenous youth empowering Indigenous youth, Indigenous leaders empowering other Indigenous leaders. Um, it was uh, directed as much, a lot of the criticism was directed at their own band, uh, chief, Chiefs and Council. So it was, a, it was a very different kind of thing. This situation here is sort of a, an Indigenous set of issues wrapped up in a much broader global campaign against pipelines and against energy development. And I don't know more, wasn't 
tied into those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. It was basically people in the Yukon said, this is what we want. People in Alberta said, here's our issues. People in Ontario spoke to Ontario concerns. So this one is actually, it's got a, a much larger non-Aboriginal sort of component to it. It's got a lot of organizing ability and, and finances coming out of the environmental sector and uh, environmental protest movement. So it, it's quite a bit different thing. Um, but, of course, in both of them involved Indigenous people gathering. But in Idle No More movement, or, it was far fewer non-Indigenous people being part of those processes. Right. And I think this situation, I think some are trying to frame it as, you know, again, a situation where we're trying to impose uh, our will on Indigenous Canadians. We're trying to impose projects on Indigenous Canadians. I mean, is, is that, that that doesn't seem like a fair assessment of the situation, does it? But it doesn't, actually. And it's kind of interesting. You know, if you look over the last, say, 30 years and say, how would you describe the coastal gaslink project, for example? My, my reaction would be, this is the largest and most substantial indigenous engagement with a major resource development project in Canadian history. We've never seen anything like it. We have 20 First Nations along the route through their band and chief councils who've agreed with this project. Um, we have people in every community, including every non-indigenous community, um, sort of upset about it. They're not, they're not talking about everybody being 100% behind it. Um, but, but to have 20 communities along a pipeline corridor all agree that they want this project to go ahead, um, we have hundreds of millions of dollars in economic benefits, job creation opportunities, payments to communities. It's a very substantial illustration of how much the resource economy has changed. And, and there's an irony, and I particularly find it, but a, a sadness to it, it is that this whole thing is being seen as Indigenous people against the resource industry, not what's actually happening. Some Indigenous people are opposed. Some of them are opposed to pipelines in general. Some of them are opposed to energy production in general. But on the ground in northern British Columbia, along the pipeline corridor, these are communities that spent many, many months in thoughtful and intense deliberations and decided they could find a role for themselves within this particular project. That's not the message you're getting across Canada. It's sort of people oversimplify it and bring it down as all Indigenous people against the resource sector. Yes, there are some opposed to it, but not everyone. Right. And yeah, I I think, you know, irony is a good word for it because for a long time we were told this is how it should be, that that companies aren't doing enough to reach out to these communities, uh, to win over these communities, to to involve these communities uh, in in that shared prosperity. And we get a company here uh, in in this project, Coastal Gaslink, that that checks all of those boxes. And it feels as though we're being told, well, that still isn't enough. Well, I mean, it's interesting. You could apply exactly the same thing to to non-Indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. So there's a proposal to build Energy East. I used to live in New Brunswick, and I know how enthusiastic the government of New Brunswick at the time was, um, and how they were hoping this would bring a sort of a surge of revenue and income and job creation opportunities. And basically, it came down to the city of Montreal saying, you can't go through our territory. It wasn't an Aboriginal group. They might have been opposed to, but it never even got that far. And as soon as an Aboriginal group, as soon as the city of Montreal went up against it, people said, well, let's not bother. And, they, and, and the, the pipeline proponents sort of pulled out. Um, so they didn't even have a chance to go this far. But, you know, according to Coastal Gas Bank, they spent six or seven years uh, working on these collaborations. This is not a let's rush through town and sign everybody up by tomorrow afternoon. These are very long and thoughtful conversations with opposition in every community, with discussions in every community, and, and negotiations that actually are quite meaningful. So, you know, lest everybody get overly concerned in one sense about it, you know, the message really strongly is that Indigenous people are, are in, in favor of carefully managed, environmentally sound resource projects. 
and in, in you don't know this very well in Alberta that that Trans Mountain Pipeline has extra, got at least three Indigenous groups that are interested in buying all okay. or part of it. Who who would have thought that you know ten years ago? Um, this is a, a huge transformation in Indigenous involvement in the resource economy, and it certainly is seen in a very positive way. You have some people who take a different view of pipelines, of energy development, and of Canada's role in, in climate change. Uh, they have strong views. They have every right to express them. I think the question on that side is, yes, you have the right to express your views, but where does it stop? At what point is the, does this protest or dissent cross over into civil disobedience and even, in some instances, anarchy? Um, and some of those people are Indigenous and some of them are not. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to value and, and respect their, their opinions and their willingness to stand up. Uh, this one is more complicated because it's starting to sort of gain momentum in multiple directions. You know, so if you look at what's going on in, in the Belleville area in southern Ontario, um, you know, Mohawk folks are standing up and blockading a, a train track that is causing millions of dollars of damage into the Canadian economy. Um, you'll notice that there aren't thousands of people there. There aren't all sorts of Indigenous First, First Nations bands and councils and chiefs and councils telling going along with this protest. Um, they're happy to support pr- protest and opposition, not happy to see this kind of development taking place. Right. And there's also the question then of, of who speaks for First Nations, right? The, the 20 elected band councils and elected chiefs along the route of the uh, coastal gasoline pipeline can, can claim to speak for their people. They have some democratic mandate. Uh, the hereditary chiefs don't have that, but uh, the, there is a, a tradition of, of having these hereditary chiefs and there's the additional complexities of, of what the situation in BC is, where, where we don't have treaties that, that provide some further clarity uh, around these, these land claims. So how do, we, how do we resolve all of that? Well, it ultimately, it's actually an issue for the, the Wet'suwet'en people themselves. Um, you know, it's not up for non-Indigenous people to walk in and tell them how to govern themselves or even the government of Canada to do that. Um, we've seen this across the country when we have Self-government agreements negotiated, modern treaties negotiated. They include provisions for the kind of governance system that communities want. And and so, you know, the hereditary chief situation was the form of government. It, it wasn't sort of a something that happened on the side of government. It was the government. And it was that way for hundreds of years. So it has, and the Supreme Court of Canada has recognized this in the Delgamuth case. So they recognized that, that, that the hereditary chiefs had that role in the past. What we don't have is clarification of what that means, um, and and how and the, we haven't got the clear evidence that the community itself wishes to go in that direction. Uh, they may well, if they negotiate a modern treaty, which has to be subject to democratic ratification, uh, they could end up doing what the the Nishka have done in Northwest British Columbia, where they've actually went through this whole long process, very difficult process, and they uh, voted substantially in favor of a of a modern treaty that included the Limous government. It was a reinstatement of, of indigenous traditions and the governance of their affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we may get there, but it's, you know, in this particular instance, the hereditary chiefs have every right in the world to, to speak out and sort of show their opposition. Nothing unusual about that. Um, it isn't something for the government of Canada to unilaterally decide how they want to go. Um, I think personally that this is a situation where the Wet'suwet'en people, uh, in whatever mechanism they choose to do, have to make it clear how they want to proceed and then have to go through the negotiations, uh, particularly the government of Canada, through treaties. But in this whole conversation, people have lost sight, I think, a little bit of the fact that there is a BCDI Treaty Commission uh, process where they're negotiating treaties now for quite some time. It's the sixth, 
six-stage protest, and according to the website of the Government of Canada, the what's and what are at the fourth stage of a six-stage process. So when that is done, when they get to number six, which the you know, folks in a couple of communities have done, uh, they will have the right to establish a different kind of governance system if that's what they choose to do. And so I'm optimistic in that sense, in the fullness of time, we will get a clarification of these things. The problem is it happens in a, a situation like this. But one quick observation, if I, if I may, um, and that is that we also had a, a court decision recently uh, on the Trans Mountain Pipeline that essentially the court said one community or even a number of communities together cannot stop a project that has substantial indigenous support and is in the best interest of the country or deemed to be in the best interest of the country. Yeah. So even if the hereditary chiefs carried the day, even if they, even if the people would so what and swapped, switched over and said, we're going to cancel our support for this project. Um, the courts have been right now and only very recently have indicated that may not be enough and the project could then go ahead. Seems to me though, and, and as you say, there, there, there's some issues that, that maybe will be resolved in due course, but are, are we left with a situation where now we just have to learn to live with these blockades and these protests, that they remain in place until all of this is resolved? Or can we say, look, we understand you're trying to draw attention to this, mission accomplished, let's end the blockades, end the protests, and we'll get on with solving all of this? That's the $24 million question, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's a really important and really serious one. Um, my concern, and it's a personal one about speaking for First Nations people, um, is that they risk very much losing public support, um, you know, for, for their, for Indigenous affairs and Indigenous rights. Uh, that's a pretty delicate thing. The whole country has not really internalized the idea of re-empowered Indigenous people. And so the longer the protests go on, it's not likely that people are going to say, okay, let's give more powers to Indigenous folks. And that would be really unfortunate. Second point, watch the, the, the careful hand of, of Indigenous leadership here. I think National Chief Perry Belgard has worked very, very carefully to not only urge for calm, but also to work very hard behind the scenes to actually stop things from getting larger and, and, and more complicated. Uh, individual chiefs uh, and band councils and elders along all, the, you know, all these different protest areas have been really careful about not sort of urging you know, sort of more conflict. I, I'm always astonished at how peaceful Indigenous people are in their protests. Even these ones are not violent. They might be disruptive, um, but they're not fully confrontational. Mm-hmm. Um, we only haven't any had much of that nature since the Oka uh, conflict from many years ago. So, you know, the good news here is to watch the watch the elected leadership, watch the the, uh, the elders themselves, basically trying to talk the community down. Um, you're not going to get everybody. Uh, I think we have a broader question. It's not an indigenous question. The broader question is sort of how you deal with civil disobedience in Canada. Now, we're not good at that because we haven't had very much. You know, we're a pretty complacent nation. We're a pretty comfortable nation. We're a fair and just nation in, the, in, 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 full, in most of the parts. But I think we, we have to give some careful thought, about, again, separating it from the indigenous side, of, of how we deal with civil disobedience. Because if we, if we keep going on the current path, the message will be to other people who don't like government policies um, that we're going to go off in that direction. We're going to have more of this civil disobedience. Because if governments can be sort of, you know, pushed to the sidelines in this way, um, why wouldn't somebody else on a different cause altogether move in that same direction? Yeah. Well, some important points uh, as uh, we watch how this all plays out. Uh, Ken Coates, thank you so much for the insight and appreciate you making some time for us here today. You're more than welcome. Take care. All right, you as well. That is Ken Coates, a professor at the University of Saskatchewan, uh, Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation.
Uh, the Johnson Shiama Graduate School of Public Policy is also a fellow with the Royal Society of Canada and a senior policy fellow in Aboriginal and Northern Canadian issues at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Our number here, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. A lot more still to get to here this afternoon. Stay with us. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.